Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I think that this is a very opportune time to take a new and somewhat different look at the climate change problem. We are just a few months out from a a landmark meeting uh, which will be held in Paris in December this year, at which the nations of the world will come together to agree a new deal uh, on climate change. We also have had a change in political leadership here in this country. So uh, it's an opportune moment, I think, for us to get together in the national capital and have a think about this climate change issue from a slightly broader perspective than we're used to doing. Of course, as we deal with climate change, those of us who are involved and engage with the issue a lot, you tend to narrow down on particular things and particular challenges and topics. Uh, Occasionally, it's good just to step back and see the bigger picture, and that's what I'd like to do this evening. It might seem strange to some of you uh, who've been in this uh, space for a while that I choose to call a book Atmosphere of Hope. After all, things are pretty grim at the moment. Um, And uh, it was only recently that I myself began to see, uh, by stepping back, uh, where that hope might lie. But in order to see the reasons for hope, I think we need to be pretty honest with where we are at the moment and have have a fair assessment of where things stand. So I'd like to begin my presentation with that assessment. We're just at the end now, I hope, of a decade of worst case uh, case scenario for emissions trajectory. Um, The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produces trajectories about how they think uh, things will work out into the future. One of the things they look at is the volume of human emissions of greenhouse gases. And for the last 10 years, we've been tracking the worst case that they uh, could project or imagine was possible. Last year, uh, in fact, as part of that trajectory, we saw 40 gigatons of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere. It's an unimaginably large amount of anything, uh, a gigaton, uh, much less 40 gigatons. And I want to just try to put that number in perspective a little bit by thinking about what it might take to draw one-tenth of that volume back out of the atmosphere. And one way we could feasibly do that, given current technologies, is by tree planting. So how big an area would you need to plant with forest in order to draw four gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? Turns out you'd need to plant an area roughly the size of the Australian continent with forest at the rate of one New York State-sized hunk every year and do that for 50 years and keep those forests growing vigorously over that period. And at the end of that time, you will have drawn out, on average in any year, four gigatons of carbon dioxide. If you actually did manage to do that, though, you would change the nature of the planet. You would change the way Earth functions because much of Australia is a very bright, reflective surface. It's either desert or grassland reflects sunlight back into space and helps cool the planet. If you plant that area over with a dark forest canopy, you're changing Earth's albedo. 
changing the way it absorbs, the amount of sunlight it absorbs and turns into heat energy because that dark surface will absorb more sunlight and turn it into heat energy. So despite the fact you'd be drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, you'd also be heating the planet by changing its albedo. And so the take home message for me about four gigatons of carbon or even one gigaton, much less 40 gigatons, is that it's a volume of greenhouse gas which is significant at a, planet, a level of planetary function. These are very big numbers we're talking about here. They're unimaginably large, um, but very, very significant. At the end of that decade of worst case scenario uh, emissions trajectory and following on 200 odd years of uh, industrialization, we stand at a point today where average global temperatures are about 0.9 of a degree warmer than they were 200 years ago. It seems like a small amount, but it has clearly had significant consequences. And it's worth acknowledging as well that because of the longevity of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the way they operate, we're committed to a further roughly a half a degree of warming. So we will see one and a half degrees of warming pretty much no matter what we do. So even if we cut off all greenhouse gas emissions today, we'd still see a significant amount of warming uh, into the future. So what has 0 0.9 of a degree of warming done in terms of uh, impacting on Earth's climate systems? We've seen some uh, pretty, I'd say, um, spectacular examples just over the last 12 months to two years. Uh, reading the paper today, even in the Australian, mind you, I reading, have had a quick look at the paper, there was a small article acknowledging the fact that the drought in California is the worst drought in 500 years. They, uh, that is an extraordinary fact. And combined with the forest fires that are now uh, occurring in Northern California, we can see a pretty clear consequence of our changing climate in that area. In Australia, we have, we have all, I think, seen and lived through some very significant shifts in climate, particularly for some of the, the uh, older people yeah, in the audience. Just in my own personal experience, um, the 2009 bushfire in, in Victoria was an extraordinary event. I remember driving from Sydney down to Melbourne on about, must have been the day after it happened or perhaps two days after it happened, and I hit the pall of smoke from that fire about Yass. You could smell the fire from Yass south. It was a, a huge conflagration that had built on the back of uh, one of the longest uh, droughts we'd experienced uh, uh, in European settlement in Australia and one of the worst heat wave conditions that we'd ever seen. And out of all of that came quite, um, uh, for reasons you can imagine, uh, a bushfire of um, extraordinary ferocity. On the old MacArthur, William, uh, uh, MacArthur um, forest fire danger scale, 100 is the level uh, represented by the 1939 bushfires in Victoria. The, the Black Saturday fires in 2009 were somewhere between 200 and 300 on that scale. And at the, under those sort of conditions, fire just behaves differently. It's, it's um, more dangerous, uh, more unpredictable, a different sort of beast. We know that climate is influencing those things. We know it's in influencing um, uh, our, the droughts. We know it's influencing heat waves, particularly. And we know it is influencing bushfires. So there's one common thread through that that we can see as um, 
uh, as our, our climate changes around us. I don't want to put, uh, don't want to spend too much time talking about uh, the current predicament we're in, but we need to just talk about a couple of other examples of what's happening around the world. Um, glaciers are melting faster than ever, and I was totally dismayed to discover that um, the last glacier in the Australo-Papuan region, which is on Mount Jaya, in Irian Jaya, um, is due to melt away, or scheduled to melt away, in the next two to three years. That's extraordinary. That glacier's been there for, forever, for a very, very long time indeed. I was fortunate enough to climb up to the glacial snout and shelter in a, an ice cave there uh, some years back and have a look at the extraordinary alpine environment that exists below that glacier. Um, to think that that's going to melt away in the next two to three years is, uh, again, I would have would, for me it would have been unimaginable a decade ago. I know the predictions were there that the glaciers were melting, but to see such rapid change in our own region is dismaying, to say the least. Further south in West Antarctica, the Pine Island and Thwaites glaciers, we now know, have mechanically detached from the rock under them, and those glaciers, from a mechanical perspective, have no choice but to melt away. That, that ice is just going to keep flowing into the sea now that there's no bedrock uh, slowing, slowing down the flow of the ice. Those glaciers will probably add around about a metre to average sea levels. They're very, very big hunks of ice. In terms of time scale as to how long it'll take, that obviously is still uh, to be determined, but some NASA uh, projections suggest it could be on the order of about a century before those glaciers melt. So they are big, irreversible changes we've seen in our climate system at temperatures of average temperature increases of just under a degree Celsius. At one and a half degrees, the, um, the researchers warn us, the Great Barrier Reef is going to be in very profound difficulty. It's going to be, it's hard to imagine a barrier reef in anything like its current state at one and a half degrees of warming. And of course, rising sea levels are likely to endanger the Kakadu wetlands, um, a lot of coastal infrastructure around our country and in many other places around the earth. So we could argue that just under one degree of warming is an unacceptably large amount, and yet we know we're committed to one and a half degrees, and realistically speaking, given that we can't cut emissions from fossil fuels instantly, two degrees is not an unrealistic expectation. I think that m many of the projections that uh, you look at from the scientists acknowledge that it's going to be hard to avoid two degrees of warming, regardless of what happens in Paris and, um, and whatever other actions we take, just that economies take time to start turning around. So that I suppose on the face of it sounds more a recipe for hopelessness rather than hope, um, but that, that is the fact of where we, where we stand at the moment. So where does the hope come from? Well, for me, it really comes from three broad areas that I'd like to spend the rest of the evening discussing. The first is that the difference, well, the first concerns the difference that I see when I address audiences like this uh, compared with what I saw 10 years ago. Now, when I published um, The Weathermakers a decade ago and when Al Gore was doing his presentations, we had to resort to graphics and all sorts of science informatics to get the point across that climate change was happening and was a threat. When I speak to people today, that's just not the case. For a lot of people around the world, climate change is now a lived experience. They know it from their practical lived life. And that is hugely important because along with that we've seen a change in sentiment. We've seen a growing willingness to tackle the problem, um, to deal with it 
um, even in the acknowledgement that there's a cost involved, and to organise ourselves to do so. Uh, the Climate Council is just one example of, a, of a, an organisation that's self-organised from below, actually, with people contributing to it and helping to spread information about climate change. The Australian Youth Climate Coalition didn't exist a decade ago. Now there's, I think, there's 70 or 80,000 young Australians involved in that organisation who are doing lots of different things in order to help uh, further action on climate change. Solar Citizens, I'm sure there's some people who belong to Sol Solar Citizens in the audience, is another group that's self-organised around action on climate change. None of that existed a decade ago. And I think there's great cause for hope. Even though our politics is slow sometimes uh, at doing things, the, the social conditions are now right, I think, for action on climate change. The second great reason for hope to me is, I guess, comes in part from that first reason. And it concerns an announcement made by the International Energy Agency in April this year. Uh, they announced that for the first time in their record keeping, which goes back 40 odd years, um, economic growth had decoupled from emissions growth from the burning of fossil fuels at the global level. The way they expressed it was that emissions from the burning of fossil fuels had stalled in 2014, at the same level it was in 2013, but that global economic growth had continued. When I read that, I thought, this is a truly extraordinary finding. If this is correct, it's an extraordinary cause for hope. That decoupling is something I didn't dare hope for for many years into the future. If it has actually occurred in 2014, that is quite an achievement. And two big factors seem to be influencing that decoupling. The first is the, um, the growing uh, use of renewables, so wind and solar. They have been growing at, at an extraordinarily fast rate. Costs have been declining very rapidly. And we've seen a very widespread deployment. For the last year, three years running, uh, investments in renewables have outpaced those in investment in fossil fuels. So that's been a big, quick change. But secondly, it's the, the whole energy efficiency thing has been very, very important. Um, God, if I don't know, for decades now, I guess everyone in this room has been doing things like changing their light globes to more efficient models or maybe taking a bike to work occasionally or ad, ad, agitating for a bike path in their city or insulating their home or putting solar panels on your roof. Whatever it is, those little things that you've been doing, you haven't been alone. There's been many, many millions of people doing that sort of thing, billions of individual actions that have added up to something very substantial. You know, peak oil demand in developed countries is now, many developed countries, is some years behind us, some years in the past. Peak electricity demand is the same. Peak electricity demand in Australia occurred five or six years ago, and demand's been decreasing since then until a very recent uptick we can talk about later, but has been decreasing because of the deployment of solar and because of energy efficiency. So that achievement of decoupling global economic growth from growth in emissions from the burning of fossil fuels comes from technology and from the actions of many, many millions, if not billions of people. And I think that's, there is nothing can be more heartening than that. I mean, it is, it's the moment to turn around and pat ourselves on the back and say we've actually, all of those little actions have added up to something really huge. To me, that is very, very important. Having said that, it's clear, as I said at the outset, that the, 
the, the pledges that have already been made in the lead up to the Paris meeting, individual actions and changing technology are not going to get us out of trouble. 0.9 of a degree of warming is arguably too much. One and a half degrees, I suspect way too much. We all want to keep the barrier reef, yeah? I don't think we can live in that sort of world uh, very comfortably. And two degrees risks very profound danger, I think, and very profound change. And it was in an attempt to really come to terms with that challenge that the third big cause for hope uh, started to form in, in my mind. And I should give you some background on it, really. Um, in 2006, when I was travelling uh, about the place, uh, talking about the weather makers, I got a phone call from Richard Branson, a very interesting man in many ways. Um, he said, would you come to uh, the, the Virgin Islands, to my place in Necker Island, and talk to me and my CEOs ab about climate change? So I agreed to do that, uh, went and talked to him, and he surprised me. He said, you know, I don't think that we're going to make this challenge. He said, knowing human nature, I think that we're just not going to organise fast enough. He said, what I want to do is to look at ways we can draw some of the gas out of the air. And we'd been talking about this a bit. Is it possible to draw CO2 out of the air at scale or not? And we came to the view that the only way you'd find out, really, is to put a prize out there. So he said he would foot the bill for the what's called the Virgin Earth Challenge. It's a 25 million pound challenge to industry, to researchers, uh, to come up with technologies which have the potential to draw one gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere, that's about 3.7 gigatons of CO2, uh, per annum. So technologies have the potential to do that. Now, I've been a judge on that, that, um, that prize now for, well, since 2007, along with Al Gore and James Lovelock and, and uh, Sir Crispin Tickell. And we've seen the proposals roll in. The technologies are still at an immature stage, but I do think that the potential is there to start drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere at that gigaton scale, at the scale of planetary significance. Not today, not in 2030 most likely, but certainly by 2050. So the third big reason for hope is that there is a third way of dealing with the problem. And the first way is emissions reductions. We must do that. The second way that's increasingly being talked about is geoengineering. In my view, we must avoid that. Um, Geoengineering, incidentally, uh, involves a series of proposals such as putting sulphur in the stratosphere that basically act as a band-aid on the problem. Um, they are, they're, they're dangerous, um, they don't deal with the problem at its, its root cause, and yet they are cheap and immediately effective and there is no global treaty regulating their use. So my fear is as the problem grows, a China or a Russia or whoever facing dire consequences domestically may decide to foot the bill for some geoengineering and therefore exacerbate the problem. So we don't want to go the second way, but the third way about um, drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere is, I think, an absolutely necessary tool in terms of us dealing with this problem. For a definition of the third way, if you're interested in it, it is, I've tried to define it as being um, proposals and experiments and technologies that shed light on the Earth's natural systems for maintaining the carbon balance and how they might be stimulated to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere at a faster rate than currently occurs, and should also include in that, um, um, that um, definition human um, methods of sim uh, simulating those natural 
drawdowns so we can do things that the natural system can do in a, in a way that doesn't harm the system but in fact strengthens Earth's system. So what are the technologies that uh, constitute the third way? They come in two great streams. The first are you could loosely call the biological methods and they're very familiar to many of us. Um, tree planting is a good example. I mean trees are a little more than congealed atmospheric carbon dioxide. They draw CO2 from the air, they grow, they store it safely for a limited period of time. But there's a whole series of biological options. Many of them incidentally are being funded through our direct action policy at the moment. So there is um, on-farm practices such as uh, rotational grazing for stock, um, changing burning patterns across northern Australia in indigenously held lands uh, that, that all add to the potential to sequester carbon in the soil. They're good things to be doing. They're not emissions reductions and they shouldn't be thought of as emissions reductions. They're a separate approach. They're, they're third way technologies that we need to invest in in terms of R&D to bring them to scale. Another one that's got some um, recent um, press is biochar biochar production. It's one of the more established industries uh, in this, this area among the, third, the biological third way technologies and yet it's so still small scale. About a thousand tonnes of biochar is produced every year. So these things need to grow. You know, the gigaton scale is so far away from a thousand tonne scale. It's, you know, growing is a massive, massive challenge. And of course the biosphere is limited in its capacity to do all of these things for us because we already place such great demands on it. We are, you know, all of our food, our fibre, our, our shelter, forest products all come from the biosphere. So to ask it to sequester carbon as well, unless we're very careful about it, um, we will soon run across limits. Once we leave the land, however, both the uncertainty and the opportunity look to increase. Marginal marine environments, mangroves, saline wetlands and so forth are great sinks for biological carbon. Um, I think there's a really, really good argument for looking carefully at coastal development to see how we can enhance those environments rather than destroy them as we go about uh, developing uh, coastal areas. One opportunity, though, that is um, where there is a firm proposal on the table concerns seaweed farming. Seaweed, you know, kelp, is fabulous stuff. It grows 30 to 60 times faster than most land-based crops. Um, we already know about seaweed farming. The Chinese have um, 500 square kilometres of seaweed farms off the coast of China and we can look at those seaweed farms to see what impact they have. And it's quite extraordinary what they do. Um, in those seaweed farms uh, in uh, the Yellow Sea in northern China, the seaweed is grown for human consumption, um, but it's, they often partner the seaweed with a whole lot of protein production, whether it's fish, prawns, scallops, whatever else, and those species tend to thrive in the seaweed farms because of the buffering the seaweed offers. The seaweed draws CO2 out of the salt water. Um, we know ocean acidification is a problem, and so average pH for seawater is about 8.2. It's dropped now to 8.1 as a result of acidification. Around Chinese seaweed farms, pH reaches about 10 on occasion. So the waters are well buffered by the seaweed, and they're an ideal place to grow protein as well as seaweed. What would we need to do, though, to say, draw CO2 out of the atmosphere at a significant scale using seaweed. There's one uh, desktop study that says, well, if we could plant 9% of the world's oceans with seaweed farms, uh, we could draw down the equivalent of all of, the all of the CO2 we're putting into the atmosphere in any one year currently. 
so about 40 gigatons. It's a massive scale. Now, 9% is a seductively small sounding number, but when you do the, the figures, it's, it's an area about four and a half times the size of Australia. It's very, very big. And uh, of course, what are you going to do with all of that seaweed? It's not all going to be eaten, right? You're going to, so, so there's various proposals about how we might use that seaweed. One proposal is that you might put it into methane digesters, which are a very well-known on-farm um, uh, methodology at the moment. Turn the seaweed into methane, burn it for electricity, and then sequester the CO2 somewhere. Where that might be, I'll leave for a moment and come back to a bit later on, because I, I want to just briefly discuss the other technologies in the third way. So that's a bit of a a sampling, really, of the biological strategies that may be used to, to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale. The other great stream in third-way technologies are the what you might call the chemical pathways. Uh, they're very different from the biological ones because in the biological ones, the sun is the power source and that's free. The capture mechanism is plants and they also are abundant. Um, when it comes to the, the, uh, the, the chemical pathways, we need an external energy source. And all too often today, that energy comes from the burning of fossil fuels. So given the current energy mix globally, a lot of the chemical pathways are not prospective at scale, simply because they depend on the burning of fossil fuels. But in future, that may change. As we green the electricity mix, we may see these technologies becoming more and more prospective. So what are they exactly? One of the most promising is the production of carbon-negative concrete. Concrete uh, production adds about, well, it constitutes about 5% of global emissions of carbon dioxide. It's a big producer at the moment. There are companies who have pioneered new ways of making concrete uh, using industrial waste, using fly ash from coal-fired power plants, to produce what they call carbon-negative concrete. So this is concrete that doesn't produce emissions uh, in the production uh, process, but which, uh, as it cures, draws CO2 into its structure and sequesters um, uh, CO2 into the concrete structure. Concrete itself is a, 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 an ancient material. It's been known since Roman times. It's got a great track record. Engineers know what they're getting when they pour Portland cement, concrete made from Portland cement. Carbon-negative concrete, for all of its um, attractiveness from a climate perspective doesn't have that long track record and therefore isn't being used as widely as it could possibly be. There's a role, I think, for government uh, to and, and industry to work together to see if we can give carbon-negative concrete that track record. There's lots of low-risk uses for concrete where we could be looking at, at, at carbon-negative uh, methods for making concrete and seeing if uh, we can give that product uh, the longevity or the track record it needs so that it can be more widely deployed. A second big stream in the chemical pathways concerns olivine-based rocks, so serpentinites and other rocks which are quite abundant in Australia and, and, and around the world. As they weather, they absorb CO2 into their structure um, and, and store it there. If you take five or six gigatons of olivine rock and, and grind them up, you can sequester about a gigaton of carbon. It's large-scale sequestration. Now, at the moment, of course, it takes a lot of fossil fuel to dig up that rock and to grind it up. As I said, it may not always be the case in future. But there are already proposals for using olivine-based rocks in a number of ways. There's already a Dutch company called Debigium who put it, mix it with roof paint. And uh, so the stuff sits on your roof and absorbs CO2 
uh, for years after you've painted your roof. There are proposals to seed beaches with it, so grind it up to a sand sized material, put it on a beach where it's being turned over and exposed and, and can, um, uh, can, can take in CO2 more rapidly uh, under those conditions. Also, people are looking at using some of the olivine-based rocks as soil amendment, um, so in, in potting mixes, in general soil amendments and so forth, in agriculture. The opportunity is there to do that at scale and to start drawing down some CO2. There's, again, a series of other technologies and approaches which are at a very immature stage but I think are worth talking about. I've held in my hand a small plastic mobile phone cover made from atmospheric carbon dioxide. It's probably the most expensive mobile phone cover in the known universe today, but, um, but the fact is it exists. Technologies exist to take atmospheric CO2 and to make them into plastics. There are some companies out there, particularly in the US, who are looking at using those plastics, uh, for example, in office furniture and use them as a more per permanent store of CO2. Keep in mind that they take energy to do this and the energy at the moment comes from the burning of fossil fuels, may, or may not always be that way. Just over the last couple of weeks there's been some extraordinary breakthroughs in this area. Two weeks ago I saw an announcement that a group of researchers had discovered how to make carbon nanofibres directly from atmospheric CO2. The important thing about that discovery was that the cost of production using their method is one-tenth that of current production costs. Quite an extraordinary breakthrough. Carbon nanofibres are going to be a very big part of our future. At the moment, well, they're used wherever you need very light, strong materials, like in aircraft hulls. But they are being, they'll be increasingly used in nanotubules in everything from medical diagnostic kits through to building materials and, um, of course, aircraft and whatever else. But as the costs come down, I think carbon nanofibres are going to be competing very strongly with steel and other, other metals um, in the marketplace. About a week ago, I read a, a, an article. I've still I've got to check up and make sure it's uh, actually right, but I should share it with you. A story concerned some South Korean researchers who'd found a way to use old coffee grains, to activate old coffee grains to capture atmospheric methane. I mean, it sounds incredibly unlikely. And I suspect we'd all have to be drinking 100 cups of coffee a day to get anywhere near a gigaton of atmospheric methane captured. But, um, but nevertheless, these technologies are being, uh, are being pursued and looked at um, as people... Um, I guess look at this problem, look at the CO2 in the atmosphere and the greenhouse gases and say, how can we deal with them? Those last two examples are really very, very early stage things. They may actually lead nowhere, but they give some sense of where people are thinking. I tried to think through uh, what a conservative number might be for third-way technologies in terms of the potential to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere by, say, 2050. Uh, and I discounted things like seaweed farming, which are just too speculative. Um, had a look at um, some of the others and came up with a figure of around about 40% of current annual emissions. That looks about right to me. There's a lot of problems in terms of trying to calculate a figure like that, but a conservative view was about that, and that's just under the amount you need to draw out of the atmosphere to lower atmospheric CO2 concentrations by one part per million. So for what it's worth, that, that was the figure that I came up with in, in the book using a kind of back-of-the-envelope approach. Before I 
go on, I just want to uh, mention something concerning seaweed farming, and that is really a new look at carbon capture and storage, because for some of the larger scale third-way technologies, we need a, a capture, we need somewhere to put the CO2. Carbon capture and storage, as it's currently envisaged, is, is all about giving a bit of extra life to coal-fired power plants. Um, and that, you know, there's been two big plants built now. It, it's just, it's pretty clear it's not going to work out. But if you go back to basics and ask yourself a question, well, where is it on Earth that CO2 might be stored safely? You come up with some more interesting options. They're at the desktop stage at the moment, but I think, that, again, they're worth pursuing as R&D projects. One proposal is that a very good place to store CO2 is in marine sediments at about two to three kilometres depth under the ocean. Because at those depths, the water column above acts as a pressurising agent on the CO2, and it doesn't keep trying to escape out of the sediments. It's pressurised, stays in liquid form, and stays in the sediments. On land, uh, you put the CO2 into the rocks, and it's buoyant. It's always trying to escape, which is an issue. So could we imagine seaweed farms floating on the oceans with methane digesters there and pipes pumping CO2 into shallow sediments on the ocean floor and permanently sequestering it there? Maybe. I mean, the ocean floor, incidentally, is where a lot of the, where the carbon ends up anyway, the excess carbon, over geological time is turned into carbonate. So it's a bit of a shortcut, I guess, for uh, uh, the ultimate destination of a lot of that material. Another carbon capture proposal that really interests me has come out of astrobiology people looking at Mars and saying, well, that planet's got ice caps made of frozen CO2. Why doesn't Earth? It turns out that the temperatures over Antarctica are just not quite cold enough. Average temperatures over the Antarctic ice cap are about minus 57 degrees. CO2 freezes and falls out of the air at minus 78.5 degrees. Um, incidentally, temperatures over the Antarctic ice cap sometimes drop as low as minus 90. So it does snow CO2 at times in Antarctica, but without that CO2 being buried, it, as soon as conditions warm, it just sublimates and escapes back into the atmosphere. So the proposal that was put together based on that insight about Mars was that maybe we could build some big chiller boxes in the Antarctic. You know, these are 100 metre cubes, right? And dig a bit of a hole under them. How would you power them? Well, the researchers said if you had about half of the installed wind energy that exists today in Germany, you could power enough chiller boxes to draw a gigaton of CO out of the gigaton of uh, carbon out of the atmosphere every year. A big, sorry, CO2 out of the atmosphere every year. They're big numbers. Um, we know that wind power works in the Antarctic. Antarctic research stations have wind turbines to generate electricity. Um, I know whenever I mention this possibility, I look around the room and I can see some people grimacing because the Antarctic is the last wilderness and who wants to have chiller boxes and wind farms all over it, right? It's true. But I think there's, a, there's an element of nimbyism in that, particularly when we consider what conditions might be like in 20 or 30 years' time where we're making choices about the Great Barrier Reef and whether it will persist um, and the other ongoing impacts uh, of climate change. Talking about the future as I have tonight and in my book is always fraught with difficulties. I know when I thought about 2050 and what it might be like, my imagination failed me and I really had to go back and do a thought experiment. I said, well, as one way of coming at this, let's imagine we're living in 1915 and we're trying to imagine 1950. 
And I thought 1915 is a world of empires uh, that have endured for centuries, uh, horse-drawn carriages, which have likewise endured for centuries, uh, cavalry charges in battle, um, not a single communist state on the planet. A mere 35 years later, 1950, we're living in a world of nuclear weapons and jet aircraft and roughly around half the world living under communism. I mean, that's extraordinary, extraordinary changes in 35 years. The 21st century has seen only accelerated change compared with the 20th. So I really think 2050 is genuinely unimaginable. When I came up with that estimate of about 40% of current emissions being able to be drawn out of the atmosphere using third-way technologies, I genuinely believe that's a conservative estimate. It's based on 2015 thinking, not 2050 thinking. It's unimaginable, 2050, but we have one very valuable piece of knowledge. We know what the problem is we'll be trying to solve. It's all of that atmospheric CO2 and other greenhouse gases that will still be there. It's not going to magically disappear. That stuff is now in place. We continue to produce it. That is going to be the problem we'll be trying to solve. So we know it exists. We know that there is the potential for technologies to solve that problem. I can't even begin to tell you which of the technologies is going to be this is successful in 2050, but I reckon it's almost certain some of those technologies are going to succeed because we're going to need them. The development times for third-way technologies is going to be very long for many of them. If we look at wind and solar, you know, think about the state they were in in the 1970s, that's about where many third-way technologies are today. It'll be decades-long development pathways to get them to scale where they can be drawing a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere per annum. But I'm absolutely convinced, having a look at the proposals under the Virgin Earth Challenge and the additional research that I've done in my book, that that is possible. And that should be a cause for great optimism because there's young people sitting in this audience, I'm sure, who are going to make careers in that huge diverse basket of third-way technologies that we're going to need 35 years from now. So in summary, we need to do two things, really. We need to stamp down on emissions from the burning of fossil fuels as hard and as fast as we can, and we need to invest in the development pathways. It'll give us that third option when we need it uh, some decades into the future. And we also need to survive the intervening years. I have no doubt that the next decade is going to be the toughest for those of us who are involved in the climate area. We won't have reduced emissions as fast as we'd like over that coming decade. The Paris Agreements only start kicking in in 2020, halfway through that period. So it's going to be a grim time. There's not going to be any third-way technologies uh, magically uh, come to scale over that decade. They're going to be into the future. So we have to keep our hope up through what is going to be a really tough decade out to 2025. But I hope that you can see that ultimately 2030, 2040, 2050, there are real solutions to the climate problem. Thank you very much. Um, okay. Thanks very much. Very interesting lecture. Um, what level of investment do you think Australia should be making to play its place in the development of third-way technologies? I think what we need to do is to have a first-pass look at the technologies. Let's have a look at the whole basket of technologies. Let's see where our strategic 
where the strategic stars align. You know, what, what are we good at? Where do we naturally have some advantage? And to go to those areas and start looking at development. I think it's going to be, you know, hundreds of millions and probably billions of dollars before we get some of these technologies to scale, just as it has been for wind and solar. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. But that first pass through would be extremely useful then for us to try to pick some winners. As we did with solar, you know, we, we, we were leading the world with solar technology in this country, but we didn't have consistent policy. We lost that advantage. We can't do it again with this basket of technology. So let's have a look at them. Let's the Academy of Science or someone be tasked with having a look at those technologies, looking at where we are in terms of strategy, and then hoping uh, seek uh, the money that's needed. Because it will be, it'll be R&D money from government at the start, for sure, probably with some industry funds as well, but, uh, but, but government, you know, it's inescapable. Government's going to have to play a significant role. Uh, thanks, Tim, for the fantastic talk over here in Tesla's shirt. Um, uh, you mentioned very briefly the second way um, techniques and you mentioned that they would be a bad idea. Um, I was just wondering what um, explicitly would be a negative impact of those technologies? Could they per perhaps be a sort of bridge to uh, when we've got the third way technologies and while we're still uh, reducing emissions? Sure. Look, um there was a fantastic report written by the US academies uh, recently of, of sciences and uh, trying to do an evaluation of these, uh, but the geoengineering proposals. And um, their evaluation was that they are increasingly cheap to do, you know, the, the, uh, that they are um, immediately effective in terms of cooling the planet, but that they have many unintended consequences. Which, are, which can be extremely dangerous. So if you take, for example, the stratospheric sulphur approach, among the, um, the, the potential adverse consequences of pursuing that approach was uh, changing weather patterns globally. We, we know this happens when, um, when volcanoes go off and, 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 and sulphur goes into the stratosphere. Um, and one of the, uh, the areas which was potentially uh, impacted and would have a very severe consequence was the, the South Indian monsoon or South Asian monsoon. You know, 1.4 billion people are dependent on that monsoon. And circulation patterns, atmospheric circulation patterns may alter to adversely affect that as a result of seeding the stratosphere with sulphur. Um, the other... Um, uh, downsides uh, concern the fact that, you know, if a single nation did this, and there's no regulation around it, and there was some sort of uh, conflict over this. If, if the program was ceased abruptly, then you would suffer real serious potential consequences because the warming rebounds almost instantly. You know, when I say instantly, it's months or as long as it takes for the, the sulphur to fall out of the stratosphere, you would get a very rapid warming, which could be very destabilising. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for not pursuing those approaches. Incidentally, um, uh, ocean fertilisation experiments uh, uh, should be considered, I think, in the geoengineering basket. Um, the um, uh, Convention on Biological Diversity has explicitly said they shouldn't occur, has, has basically outlawed them, um, and yet they're cheap, they keep on being used. There was a group of uh, people in, in Canada who put together two and a half million dollars about three years ago to fertilise a patch of ocean in the Pacific. And, you know, if a village of a thousand people can do that and create a an algal bloom of ten thousand square kilometres in extent, then it tells you how dangerous 
these things are how easily available and how dangerous they are. And incidentally, you may say, why is that dangerous? What's wrong with algal blooms? Well, you can trigger toxic, toxic algal blooms. You can trigger um, deoxygenation in the deep ocean, which is, again, a very dangerous thing. So for a number of reasons, uh, these approaches are considered uh, areas that we shouldn't be going in. Is, is there any move to regulate against geoengineering and is Australia making any leadership role in stopping geoengineering or getting agreements between nations? Look, there has been a series of uh, talks, I think they're called the London Protocols, which have been kind of on again, off again for 15 years or so at the moment, trying to get some global approach to geoengineering and to try to get at least some a regulatory framework around it. Uh, and as it, I think it's still the case, and it certainly was in earlier in the year, that they just haven't gone anywhere, that it's been an area, it's almost been in a too hard basket. Um, Tim, would you like to comment on the fossil fuel divestment movement and whether you see that as a meaningful source of hope? Well, that's a great question. I, well, there's probably many economists in the audience who are better, <laughs> better qualified than me to, to answer that. And I, <coughs> I don't know technically what the impact is of, of that divestment in terms of valuation of, of, of uh, uh, fossil fuel stocks. But what I, what I do know is that it's a very, very strong signal that the social licence to operate is being withdrawn from those companies. And at least at that level, it's a very, very significant movement. You know, one of the figures I quote in the book is, uh, is from an analyst who says about 80% of you know, investor funds, so superannuation funds and so forth, is uh, considering, is, has had some sort of challenge um, to, to divest. So I think it is a very significant movement, although, as I said, I don't know how the economics work out when it comes to selling those stocks. Uh, good day. Uh, for myself, uh, I'm reminded of the whole Earth catalogue. We are as gods and we ought to be good at it. Uh, Thank you. Forgive me for drinking out of a plastic bottle. <laughs> but to me, the third way technologies are also a form of geoengineering. Uh, when we're talking about changing the atmosphere on the scale of gigatons, no matter what we're doing, that's geoengineering. Climate change is itself an experiment in geoengineering. Mm. Um, so on the policy side, I see some hope that we may be coming to our senses. Uh, my challenge personally comes from the science, which shows that we may be closer to tipping points than we thought, and that those tipping points may be worse than we thought. Uh, the melting permafrost in the Ar Arctic, for example. Uh, what do you think the chances are that we'll be able to stop it before we pass a point of no return? Okay. Look, could I first just... Um uh, discuss that issue of whether third-way technologies are geoengineering or not. And it is entirely true that some of the third-way technologies that I've discussed have previously been considered geoengineering. Um, <coughs> some of them have been considered direct action, you know, some of them have been considered CCS. But I, I wanted to invent a term that encapsulated those technologies which uh, could draw CO2 out of the atmosphere, either using the Earth's natural systems and enhancing them, or uh, using similar pathways. And we haven't had that term before. I think it's really important as a concept that we understand that this possibility exists. So while I agree with you, you, you could call a whole lot geoengineering, that um, terminology doesn't give you the, uh, 
the discernment you need between those techniques which are not going to solve the problem or which arguably have very adverse consequences and those which strengthen the natural systems for self-regulation. So that's the, was the distinction I was trying to draw. Um, so I think it, it is important that we have a name for those things so we can think more clearly about the problem and its future. As far as the tipping points go, again, I guess, you know, to be brutally honest, there is no guarantee that um, if you draw CO2 out of the atmosphere, you'll go back to anything like the pre-existing. Who knows? And one good example of that is probably the Pine Island and Thwaites glaciers, which, you know, I, 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 I can't imagine them refreezing to the to the rock below because the warming deep ocean warming around Antarctica is a long, slow process that's not going to reverse, and the timelines for the you know the the melting of those glaciers is 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 not you know not as long as we'd like, it's not long enough to have that reverse happen in the, the water temperature. Um, but from again, from what I understand of the modelling around things like uh, uh, permafrost um, uh, meltdown, they are tied fairly closely with the atmospheric concentrations of CO2. So you could reasonably hope that as you draw down CO2 from the atmosphere, you may be limiting the possibility of those, those abrupt tipping points occurring. Again, it's complex science, and um, it, it's one of those areas I think we need to really uh, focus on and get some more R&D in. Any more questions? Um, my question was, um, how much of a role do you think politics is going to play, especially in Australia's role um, in climate management in that next 10-year window? Well, it's, it's going to play a strong role. The, 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 the meetings, uh, the, the Paris meeting is going to lay out a course of action that countries will take between 2020 and 2030. Now, we, we, we can already see from the bids that are on the table that, that, that those pathways are a massive improvement over where we are now. But we have to remember that where we are now is the worst case scenario. So they're not going to get us to where we need to be. They're going to be one step in a long process. And I think that the, the opportunity is there to really deepen our commitments in, in, in the case of places like Australia. I mean, you know, we need to... And, we need to close down those old coal-fired power plants that we've got running. And there was a great study done by the Smith School at Oxford University that said, you know, we could conceivably stay within two degrees if we could shut down 300 of the worst and oldest large-scale coal-fired power plants on the planet in the next couple of years. You know, um, and many, well, not many, but there's quite a few in Australia that are in that area. You know, the ones down at Hazelwood, down in Yulorna, you know, one of the oldest and most polluting plants in the world. We're struggling to close it down. So when you look at the plants in India or South Africa, the old plants, how can we ask them to close it down if we can't do ours? So Australia could play a really leading role in saying, we understand the importance of this, let's move to shut those down and replace them with cleaner technologies. It's just one example. But. Uh, I was wondering, Professor Flannery, if you've considered uh, dealing with other greenhouse gases other than carbon dioxide. So you've mentioned burning off methane, which could be released from the permafrost, um, but the nitrous oxides and the other um, carbon-based greenhouse gases. Sure. Look, there are approaches, um, particularly for nitrous oxide, which are reasonably well-researched, which could be deployed at scale. Um, 
New Zealand was was leading for quite a while in the dairying industry with with dealing with nitrous oxide, using nitrification inhibitors and, and those sort of uh, approaches. They ran into problems because the, the nitrification inhibitors leave a residue which was detected in milk product exported to China, and it wasn't one of the regulation things that was supposed to be there, so it threatened their trade. Um, but sure, I think we could go a long way in terms of nitrous oxide. Now, my understanding of the other greenhouse gases isn't as great, but I think that you know, on-farm practice for, for nitrous oxide and for methane is certainly all doable. We could do a lot. Okay, this will have to be the last question. Oh. Thanks for your talk. I Thank was you. just wondering, uh, today in the uh, Guardian, they mentioned the fact that there's been a, some relief, at least by virtue of the fact that the oscillations of the ocean in the um, south of the equator are um, uh, meant that the carbon the carbon free layer the carbon carbonated layer has inverted so that there's now a, uh, a carbon free layer operating on the surface which means we'll be able to draw more carbon in, into it but at the same time as that comes out there's the wildlife fund thing that I suppose you saw today, which um, indicates the degree to which we've stuffed up the marine ecosystem already. Do you mm. think that this, the, the amount of carbon that is actually going into the ocean itself will cause any further disruption? I mean, I, I realise that it winds up the ocean bed, but sure. on that, in those levels that it's yeah. coming in now. I think you may be referring to ocean acidification and that in your question. and I think that is going to be a, a severe threat. We can already see the impacts of ocean acidification in areas like the North Pacific. Um, and they've been documented. There's been several catastrophic failures of oyster spat harvest in the North Pacific already as a result of ocean acidification. Um, and it's, it's one of those... It's a it's not a straightforward area of science, but we can see examples in the natural world where ocean acidity is naturally elevated and we can see the impacts, and they are quite severe. So I think it's important. But for the first part of your question, could I ask, I didn't see that report, but Will may have seen it and um, is much more familiar with that science in any case than I am. So, Will, would you mind trying to answer that question? Uh, no, I actually haven't seen the report. Uh, I, I, I normally go to the scientific literature rather than the Guardian or somewhere else, uh, so I haven't seen it yet. I think um, ocean circulation operates on very long time scales, uh, so I think we'd be waiting um, some time before we saw really significant overturning. I think you're talking about big overturning circulation. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that that's kicking in on a big scale yet. Okay, let's thank Tim again for a very good evening. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.